Welcome to Podship Earth. This is your host, Jared Blumenfeld. When I think about crystal clear waters and the importance of protecting the places we love, I think of Lake Tahoe. I visited this deep alpine lake each year for the past 25 years. Last year, the clarity of the lake was at its lowest in its recorded history. Back in the 1960s, you could see down more than 100 feet into the cobalt waters. But in 2017, the lake's clarity had been reduced by more than 40%. We often talk about protecting water in abstract terms. When I was at EPA, there was a move to update a policy called Waters of the United States. It's so much more effective to focus on a particular river, lake, or bay, rather than talking about them all lumped together. We only protect the places we love, and so this week, I'm going to focus on a place I love as a way of trying to understand what's been going on and how local leaders are turning the problems around. Lake Tahoe was formed 24 million years ago when the Sierra Nevada mountains were pushed up from the massive tectonic shift. The lake's 22 miles long, has 72 miles of shoreline, and has an average depth of 1,000 feet, making it one of the deepest lakes in the world, along with Lake Baikal in Russia. More than 10,000 years ago, the Washao, Maido, and Paiute Indian tribes came in the summers to Lake Tahoe every year to collect medicinal plants, hunt fish, and create tools from the granite rock. The indigenous communities found spiritual significance in the beauty of the lake. Today, their descendants are forceful advocates in the effort to protect Lake Tahoe. The Washao word, da'ao, means lake and is the origin of the name Tahoe. In 2016, President Obama came to Lake Tahoe. This place is spectacular because it is one of the highest, deepest, oldest, and purest lakes in the world. So it's no wonder that for thousands of years, this place has been a spiritual one. For the Washoe people, it is the center of their world. And just as this space is sacred to Native Americans, it should be sacred to all Americans. And that's why we're here, to protect this special, pristine place, to keep these waters crystal clear, to keep the air as pure as the heavens, to keep alive Tahoe's spirit, and to keep faith with this truth, that the challenges of conservation and combating climate change are connected. They're linked. And as Governor Jerry Brown explains, the work to protect Lake Tahoe has been bipartisan. Beauty transcends politics. And the beauty of Lake Tahoe enabled our Republican Governor Ronald Reagan and Governor Laxalt in Nevada, and today, myself a Democrat, Governor Sandoval a Republican, we work very closely because we have a higher cause, and a cause that transcends the petty issues that often divide our political parties. In order to get a clearer understanding of the issues facing Lake Tahoe, I decided to bike the 75 miles around Lake Tahoe with Jacques Landy, who's an avid cyclist and has spent the last 16 years working on Lake Tahoe restoration. 
I then talk with Darcy Goodman-Collins, who runs Keep Tahoe Blue. And finally, I meet up with Georg Gogolov to talk about how similar challenges are now confronting Russia's Lake Baikal. Jack and I meet up early in the morning to start our journey around the lake. So Jack and I are in the car park in Kings Beach, putting our bikes together. It's about 38 degrees. It's freezing. Jack, are you excited? Very much. You've done this before, though. Never from North Shore, only from South Shore. So okay. this will be a new departure point, but the same loop. So, so 77 miles, cold day. Yeah. We'll make it. Perfect. So what should we know about Kings Beach? Oh, Kings Beach is interesting community. It was one of the highest polluting places, and now the stretch of highway along the waterfront has been restored. So they've done a lot of effort to control uh, sediment runoff into the lake, and as a result, I think it's given a facelift to the whole town, and I think the place is looking and feeling nicer than I remember it. So we've been biking for about, how long, two hours? How are we doing? I think we're doing great. How are you feeling? Good. It was, I mean, the, my lungs were like completely burning because it was so cold Not to begin with. Altitude, right? <laughs> yeah, the altitude less. It's just the cold air when you suck it in when you're going uphill. Yeah, right. <laughs> Mine too, actually. Wow, yeah. Like I said, it's the first time I've ever done that climb in the shade because it's morning. And uh, because of the traffic stop, it was really quite light. So I think we had the best of both worlds here. It was great. And how much did we climb? Is that the biggest climb of the day? It is the biggest climb. I was just trying to figure the feet out. I mean, the lake's at 62, 20, and the pass is maybe 1,000 to 1,200 feet above that. So. And how far are we now from South Lake? About five miles north. Okay. Yep, getting close. And then when we get into South Lake, it's pretty developed yes yes so i'll try and steer us onto bike lanes to and there's plenty more construction they, they say in tahoe there's two seasons there's uh winter and construction season so there'll be, be a bit of a mess going through town there's nothing here in nevada it's incredible yep it is it is i mean it's it's fancy homes along the lake or up on the, the hills above the highway. And then there's that long stretch that we just ro- rode, which uh, where the highway goes inland around what's now a state park. Um, and that's really pristine land. There was really no, no development, no houses, just nature. Yeah, yeah. And of course, we do have Emerald Bay on the other side. That's California's jewel in the crown, I guess. Um, so there will be no no development along there. But then north of that, you get the so-called Gold Coast um, and then various small communities. It's not heavily developed. The population of the basin is only about 50,000. That's incredible. What about, what's the summertime population? And the, they've just revised the annual visitation numbers up from what they thought were was going to be a, was around three to five million to twenty to twenty five million, uh, based on cell phone uh, data, just yeah. aggregate numbers of visitors. That's a large margin of error from three to twenty two million. Yes, yes. Everybody was quite shocked, and now they're taking stock, and the transportation planners are are going back to the drawing board and doing some serious rethinking of how to manage that huge population, half of which is just daytime visitors who don't stay the night. Cool. Let's keep pedaling. Here comes a 
another bicyclist. Actually, this is the first bicyclist we've seen. How much has been spent on cleaning up Lake Tahoe on all these different projects over the years? Over the past 20 years, we've just passed $2 billion. That's incredible. What would a project look like to help Lake Clarity? Yep. Well, the two main sources of sediment that are clouding the clarity of Lake Tahoe are urban runoff. So a major... What's urban runoff? Urban stormwater runoff is what washes off the roads that ring the lake. It's washing off into the lake. The uh, research showed that the main pollutant clouding the lake is... Okay, we're missing turns because the podcast is taking us on the wrong turn. So what, what would wash into the lake from the parking lot? Well, mostly it's the very fine sediment that's been pulverized by all the tires uh, that are parking in those parking lots and shedding their sediment. So there's enough of this tiny, teeny little sediment that when it goes in the lake, it causes it to no longer be clear. That's amazing. It's, it is amazing, and that was a, a kind of a surprise to the researchers who were trying to figure out how to restore lake clarity. Uh, they originally thought that it was algae that was, that was clouding the lake and turning it green, but really the research showed that uh, as well as algae, it's microscopically fine sediment. Thinner than a human hair, right? Exactly, yeah, yeah. What would a project do to stop that fine sediment going from a parking lot into the lake? The project would first have to capture the runoff. So there's a lot of uh, gutters and uh, pipes and culverts and basically infrastructure going in on the sides of roads, which were originally not designed with any of that in mind. So these meadows are really great for collecting sediment. One of the projects I remember you and I visited was like a meadow restoration that helps collect all that teeny fine sediment. And it's just, it looks so beautiful right here. It is an open meadow right next to the lake. There is a beautiful stream running through it and we can see the willows uh, that are growing along the side of the stream bank. And how long have you lived here, Jack? I've been here 16 years now. I've had that great privilege. And is it a nice place to raise your kids and to live year in, year out? Just about the best, yes, that I've ever lived in. But we don't want to tell too many people that because they'll all come here. <laughs> no, I think it's, uh, it's good for environmentally conscious people to come and, and uh, settle here. I think that's the hope that, that uh, will lead to lake restoration as well, is that the the local people and the visitors will ultimately support the investments that are needed to, the relatively modest investments, I might add, to, to uh, just uh, bring us back to the original lake. So Jack, now we're right by the casinos, these huge buildings in front of us. Like, it's kind of bizarre that Lake Tahoe would have this pristine, outdoors feeling and then bam it's just bizarre i couldn't agree more (laughs) when did they go in uh they were among the original um engines of development here so were they like in the 50s it was the 40s and 50s when those big boxes came in and they 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 originally intended to have many more but as soon as the environmental movement took hold up here they put an end to those good god so are they going to stay forever i mean 
it seems like it overall Tahoe is switching much more to a younger group of visitors who are more into outdoor recreation. I wouldn't say I hope over time that they'll they'll disappear altogether, but I think they'll become more of a smaller niche and that the larger economy will be more in tune with the natural amenities up here. They look like they're kind of crumbling. I mean they're not they're not in their heyday. No. It's it's sort of a historical relic. They're not harming anything and as long as they don't literally wash into the lake, uh, we're okay with them. <laughs> and like the amount of traffic right here is this normal? I'm afraid it is. It seems like this summer in particular has seen an uptick. Well, that number you gave, upwards of 20 million visitors in one year, yeah. when they thought there was 3 million, yeah. and there's only 50,000 people that live here. I basically try and avoid town, downtown as much as I can during the summer months. So. Cool. <laughs> let's, let's keep going. Where are we going next? Well, we're going to make our way through South Shore and then turn up the U.S. Shore, and uh, maybe next stop would be Emerald, Emerald Bay. I don't know. Cool. We just came, climbed out of South Lake Tahoe. The sun's come out, a little less traffic. But what you really notice, Jack, is the burnt trees. What, tell us about the fire. Right, well, this is our most recent large-scale fire, and it has a pretty dramatic story. Uh, it started in October uh, 2016 um, on a, a late night, very windy, um, episode when I think the story is that branches fell on some power lines and started the fire. An all too familiar story nowadays. That's right. It could have been a whole lot worse, but what followed was seven, five to seven inches of rain over the next two or three days that totally put the fire out, caused, however, some tremendous runoff of sediment onto this highway, this very highway. Highway actually acted as a, 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 a protection to the lake from that sediment just going straight down because we're, the lake is right behind us. Uh, this so normally you wouldn't think of a highway doing much useful but it stopped all the sediment like the lake is just below us it's amazing like if you turn around Jack how far the fire went down I mean nearly to the rim yep. to those houses I mean that yep. but it is a minor miracle what happened they supposedly collected 250 truckloads of sediment off this highway Jesus. and just trucked it away there. yep I mean, just came down. yep if that rain hadn't happened this fire might have burned all the way to Emerald Bay We're now in Tahoe City, which is on the North Shore. We went past the Gold Coast. I'm exhausted. Like, we got 10 more miles to go. The best news of the day is that we found a place. That, Jesus, like, someone's got a fucking leaf blower. I hate those <laughs> leaf blowers. Um, best thing about the day is that we, um, we found Pokey. So now we're refueled. How are you doing, Jack? Doing great. Thanks. Made in the shade. Yeah, we're in the shade right now, which is also, it suddenly it went from 34 degrees when we left to it's probably like 70, yeah, 75. A lot of cars. I know I keep saying this, but it's kind of astounding. Maybe if we were in Yosemite, we'd be saying the same thing. To me, like Tahoe is a national park in everything but name. And just the number of people that come... And, I mean, right now, we'd be going much faster on our bikes than we would in a car. 
I like your idea of ferries. <laughs> yeah, that's a ways off. Tell us about the um, invasive species. Eurasian water milfoil. It went untended for decades, unfortunately, and so... And what does it, it look like? It looks like a, a bottle brush or some kind of a um, slimy um, weed that grows from the bottom substrate up to the surface and uh, just kind of spreads out uh, from there. Every little um, segment uh, or fragment of, of this um, weed can re-colonize um, uh, a, oh, wow. a fresh spot and just spread. It's like a, a zombie apocalypse. Exactly. So it, that's precisely what's happened. So is, you cut one head off yes. and ten more grow. Exactly. It's possible to smother them with, with tarps on the bottom of the lake and, and eradicate them that way, but it's a bit of a losing battle, it seems like, or it's a very expensive battle at the very least. We have the Asian clams, um, and we're, we so far do not have quagga mussels. Those have, have wrecked havoc with uh, Lake Mead and a number of other places sort of marching across the country from the East Coast. And uh, so far, we've managed to keep those out, and it's to the tune of $4 million a year to keep that kind of thing going at all the different places around the lake. What happens when the quagga mussel infests an area? It apparently can just wreak havoc with recreational beaches, um, just turn them into um, expanses of sharp-edged um, shells that are in very unpleasant to walk on. As far as infrastructure is concerned, uh, they literally coat the um, pipes that uh, might be used to take water out of out of a water body, they'll they'll completely wreck um, treatment plants that treat water for public consumption. If you saw this in a science fiction movie, like I don't know, I remember reading Day of the Triffids, like these plants taking over. Yes. It's a byproduct of globalization, I guess that. Uh, needs to be accounted for. I think people are realizing that there there are heavy costs associated with these invasions, and um, that's the reason why the quagga mussel has been fought as as its introduction into Lake Tahoe has been fought so hard. It would have very serious impacts on our five billion dollar, largely tourist based economy up here. How how are you doing physically? My bizarrely, the bottom of my feet. Like, I have these clip-in um, shoes. In my case, it's my back. But I'll make it. I'm fine. But we're both going to make it, unless we get hit by a Mack truck. When should people do this bike ride? Because I wouldn't recommend they do it exactly the time we've done it. No, I agree. Basically, summer is off-limits. It's the fall saddle season, as they call it, after Labor Day and before Veterans Day is, is kind of ideal. Here we go. We're back. Yeah. We did it, baby. Yeah. Jack, we did it. All right. Did, uh, did you do Tahoe or did Tahoe do you? Tahoe definitely did me. To me, the best part of the day easily was the Nevada side because mm. they had that road, that construction yep. that stopped all the cars. And it yep. felt like the road was ours. Yes. Yes. And so the early morning hours, whenever when I'm able to drag myself out of bed, that's always the most rewarding. It's just this bizarre conglomeration of... Like, literally, you said, there are trailer parks right here in Kings Beach, and then there's Larry Ellison's billion-dollar home with a swimming, like Olympic-sized swimming pool just down the road, and then you go a little bit further, and all of Nevada is preserved, and then you get to 
South Lake and the state line, and it's just massive casinos. Right. And then it, it just kind of keeps going like that. It's a slice of everything. It was, it was as you said earlier, it, sh it should be a national park, and uh, hopefully most people who come here think of it as such. And I think the modern visitor has more of that ethic of enjoying it for the pristine nature. There are a lot of Chevy Tahoes, I noticed. <laughs> like, I never thought about it, like this massive SUV that's driving along, nearly hitting us off our teeny little bikes. And then you look and it says on the back, Tahoe. <laughs> yeah, they like to come home here. What's seriously being considered, I think by some people now, is an entry fee to the basin. So that will start to give people that sense that they're entering a special place and it'll create revenue for some of the additional measures. I mean, even if it was $5. Yeah, and just do it from a license plate, you know, or fast oh, track, right. fast track type of thing. Um, yeah, we have the technology. We should yeah. use it. Yeah. So a lot of things are being considered along those lines. And um, even though the federal and federal funding picture is not that great right now, um, I think... It's just surprising because Trump, he seems like such a strong environmentalist. You'd think he's putting a lot of... I think maybe if he put money only in Lake Tahoe, people would be suspicious about maybe it was a payoff. <laughs> We're going to go and get a beer. Where, where are we going to go? Oh, right across the street, Lakeside. What do you say? Perfect. And now, word from our sponsor, Thrive Market. There's a lot of debate over the use of GMOs. Here's what Jimmy Kimmel found out when he went onto the streets of LA. What is a GMO? I don't know. I know it's like some corn bad stuff, right? <laughs> what does GMO stand for? Genetically modified. Genetically manufactured. Oh. <laughs> do you try to avoid GMOs in your diet? I do. Yeah. Tell me why. Uh, just there's just a vibration with GMOs uh, for me personally. Just something that I don't uh, particularly want to put into my body. I know it's bad, but to be completely honest with you, I have no idea. So what is a GMO? GMO stands for genetically modified organism. Basically, what it is is food made in a laboratory. At the end of the day, we don't know the health or environmental effects of these genetically modified frankenfoods. And yet, the argument goes, the natural foods are too expensive to have a real choice. That's why I love Thrive Market. It's a revolutionary online marketplace on a mission to make healthy living easy and affordable for everyone. Thrive sells only non-GMO foods and natural products at 25 to 50% below traditional retail prices. It just doesn't make sense that organic groceries should cost more than highly processed foods. And at Thrive Market, they don't. At Thrive, you can filter the food by your values and your dietary preferences and see only products that make sense for you. Whether you're vegan or gluten-free or paleo, you can be confident that whatever you buy is good for you and for the planet. And here's the best part. Thrive Market is giving Podship Earth listeners 25% off your first order and a free 30-day trial. Simply go to thrivemarket.com slash podship. And remember, Thrive is already 50% off, and now they're going to give you an extra 25% discount. There are no codes. Just make sure to type in thrivemarket.com slash podship, and the discount will be applied at checkout. Many of you live in parts of the country, like Lake Tahoe, where there are few grocery stores and even fewer places to buy natural foods. Thrive Market allows you to live off the grid and live right. 
give it a go. And now back to our episode on Lake Tahoe. I meet up with Darcy Goodman-Collins, who runs KeepTahoeBlue.org. Darcy serves as an ambassador and advocate for the lake. Darcy earned her doctorate at the University of California, Santa Barbara, on how environmental science can integrate with community engagement to inform public policy. Darcy was born and raised in South Lake Tahoe. I start by asking Darcy what it was like to be a kid growing up in Lake Tahoe. It was such a fantastic place to grow up, and our activities were outdoors, always outdoors, no matter what it was, something active, something at the lake, in the winter, go skiing. It just really made you appreciate nature and and growing up outside. And I I kind of felt great that (laughs) that I'd bicycled around the lake, and then I come in this morning and Darcy's like, oh yeah, I ran around the lake. There's so many trails, bike trails, running trails, hiking trails. You just walk outside of your house and go on a 10-mile run. Tell us why it's special to you. Yeah, Lake Tahoe is such a unique place because it's so accessible. So you've got this beautiful landscape, this beautiful lake that's so crystal clear. It's large. It's surrounded by mountains. Lake Tahoe is the second deepest lake in the United States. Um, Crater Lake in Oregon is deeper, and it's just about 1,650 feet deep at its deepest. So it's extremely deep. And it's very clear, and there's a couple of reasons why it's so clear. One of them is because the watershed or the area that drains into the lake is fairly small compared to the size of the lake. So the majority of the precipitation actually falls directly on the surface of the lake. The geology and the mixing patterns of the lake keep it so clear. On average, the lake mixes in its entirety every four years. So that means anything that's settling on the surface has an opportunity to mix to the bottom. So you have a very clear lake. Kind of a cool method by which you determine the clarity of the lake. So we've had, Tahoe's been studied for years. It's such a special place. And in the 1950s, Dr. Charles Goldman, a famous limnologist, which is a scientist that studies lakes, he noticed how remarkable Lake Tahoe was. And he wanted to look at the clarity and see if it was losing clarity and compare it to clarity numbers from the earlier part of the century. So he started collecting information on how deep you could see in the lake using a white disc. It's like a dinner plate sized disc and it's called a secchi disc. And you just drop that in the water until you no longer can see it with the naked eye. And the depth at which it disappears, that's the the clarity levels. So there's been continuous measurements since the 1950s of the lake clarity level. So what's happening to the clarity, Darcy? Unfortunately, the clarity is going down, although we have been able to arrest the decline in the clarity loss. In the 1950s, the sewage in Lake Tahoe was being directly dumped into the lake. So we were able to um, pass legislation that prevented any sewage from going to the lake. So all of our sewage gets pumped out of the basin. And recently, the biggest impact overall is climate change. So warming temperatures and everything that's associated with with climate changes. Wow. It's a very, very deep lake, so you wouldn't think that it was warming very much. There's noticeable warming. The water isn't getting as cold on the surface during the winter and spring. And what normally happens is it get co- it gets cold enough to mix. So the, every handful of years, the surface water gets cold, cold water's denser, so that helps with the mixing. 
And because the past handful of years, the water, the temperatures have been so warm, the surface levels haven't cooled down. So that's preventing the mixing that really helps cycle through the nutrients and, and gives us our beautiful clear water. The clarity and the blueness of the lake has played a large role in, in kind of helping people understand these environmental issues. Yeah, what Tahoe's known for is its clarity and its cobalt blue water. And so it's it's a real easy thing to understand the necessity to protect Tahoe to keep that beauty. So we are lucky enough to have the iconic slogan, keep Tahoe blue, simple. It's what everyone wants and what everyone comes here for. But there's a lot associated with that. We see huge impact from people visiting our beaches after big weekends or big holidays, there'll be tons of trash left on the beaches, and that trash can make its way into into the lake. I love citizen science, and you have two really cool citizen science projects. Well, the best way to make sure you protect a natural resource is to get the community on board. Citizen science is always a great way to get people excited about protecting the environment. And it also could be very useful because collecting data and information about our natural resources is expensive and time-consuming. So we created citizen science programs to help focus on the biggest threats facing the lake, aquatic invasive species, and then pollution sediments that drain into the lake. What are invasive species and and why is Tahoe particularly vulnerable? Invasive species are species that are not native to the environment, but they're invasive because they also cause negative impacts as they establish. So we have a handful of invasive species, and two of the biggest problematic species are aquatic weeds. There's a Eurasian milfoil, and then there is a curly leaf pondweed. And they're basically aquarium weeds. And both of them probably either came here by boats coming from other areas or possibly aquariums being dumped into the Tahoe Keys, which is one of our biggest marinas in the lake. And they have established throughout the shallower waters. They establish in warm waters, they establish where there's a lot of nutrients, and then they completely change the environment. So they make it easier for other invasive species to establish. They change the nutrient regimes. They're contributing to clarity loss. They make it easier for, for example, we have Asian clams that are not native. So those also can establish easier when there's more invasive species. So trying to control those once they get into the lake is a lot of work because they spread and you don't always know where they're spreading. So you like give a class on on what these weeds look like, what Asian clams, and then you send out your army of citizen scientists. Exactly. And then while they're paddleboarding or swimming or kayaking, they use an app. We partnered with UC Davis to create an app that you can easily download onto your phone. So for the eyes on the lake, they identify where the where the species are. And even if there's none present, that's just as important to know if there's some present. So for example, over the last year, we've identified two new populations. We were able to get volunteers to go out and help us pull those weeds. And it was cheap, effective, and it prevented a huge population from sprouting up. That's awesome. Thanks to all those volunteers. That's, that's really cool. It gives people who want to do something to protect the lake something they could feel they're doing hands-on. They could do it anytime. They go through a quick training, and then anytime that you're on the lake, no matter what time of year, you could help us identify new populations. How many people live in Lake Tahoe year-round? There's about 60,000 full-time residents throughout the entire lake. And I heard that there was new data from cell phones 
about how many people come here during the year. Maybe tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, we've learned that there's over 20 million visitors to Tahoe each year, which is more than the top three national parks combined. So there's a lot of impact in the lake. Some of those are day users. Some of them are here on vacation for longer periods of time. But it's just a a ton of impact and a lot of usership on our resources. What would you want those 20 million plus visitors to think about when they come to Lake Tahoe to, to help lessen the impact on the lake and the surrounding environment? So leaving no trace when they go to our beaches to pick up after themselves, being mindful of how they're impacting Tahoe, and also figuring out how they can get out of their own private cars. Because at this point, there's 11 million cars that are coming into Tahoe, and that impact is extraordinary. So even if we maintain the same amount of visitors or even increase the visitors, which is going to happen with the, the pressures and the population growth in our surrounding areas, if we can get people to Tahoe in something besides their own automobile and then give them an opportunity to get around with other means of transportation, that'll help a lot. Do you get any money from Chevy Tahoes? We don't, but we should partner with them. When I was biking around the lake, I saw all these Chevy Tahoes with a little Keep Tahoe Blue, and I was like, they should at least be giving you some money. So anything we can do to help you get money from Chevy Tahoe, let us know. It is a bit ironic to see that. The majority of our sediment going into the lake, and sediment is the number one cause of clarity loss, is from the roads and the cars driving over the sand that is put on the roads. So in the winter, we put a lot of traction to help with um, the slippery and icy road conditions. The more cars that drive on our roads, the more that sediment is ground up into fine particles. Those particles make their way to the lake, and the finer they are, the less capable they are of settling to the bottom. So they stay suspended in the water column. So the more road usage we have and the more our roads break down the more sediment that gets washed into the lake so getting people out of their cars and less cars on the road other means of transportation will help decrease the amount of sediment that's going into the lake no one wants to come to tahoe and sit in traffic they're coming up here to get away from their urbanized normal life and have a a a peaceful vacation so having a nice experience where you're not spending half your time in the car would help just everyone enjoy Tahoe more. Even if this was a national park like Yosemite, their number one issue is traffic mm-hmm. and pollution from traffic. And I guess what they're doing is is having park and rides. So last year we launched a bike share program. We partnered with the company Line Bike and they brought over 200, I think by the end about 500 bikes up to the south side of the lake. And they were used extensively. We figured that about 8,000 vehicle miles were removed from the road that during that period. And they came back again this summer. They brought electric scooters, which have their own controversies associated with them. But for the pilot project here in Tahoe, we've had over 100,000 miles ridden between the bikes and the scooters. So we're definitely getting people out of their cars, and people are loving it. So you're a pretty visible member of the community. You live here, you work here. What do people come up to in the grocery store and say? And I think people get frustrated the most with things that they aren't allowed to do with their own properties. So why do I have to put in best management practices, which are practices that help with erosion and and other things that contribute to lake 
quality decline. That's pretty rare these days because people understand that the lake is what they're here for and they want to help be a part of the solution. How is it living in a community with so many second homes? My parents still live in the same house where I was born, and our neighbors used to all be 100% full-time, and now I would say 80% of them are vacation rentals, which is sad because there's just not that much care, and you're not looking out for your neighbor, and the lawns are all dying. So that is one consequence of having that type of industry. Tell us about when you ran around the lake. Well, I'm an avid runner. I love running. And so I have been able to do a couple of relays around the lake, and they're a ton of fun. You get to see the area, and you get to experience differently. And when you're driving, you you don't get to see the the same things that you do when you're huffing and puffing going up a hill and and enjoying, um, just enjoying it at a much slower pace. I just can't believe that anyone could even think about running around the, the lake. When did you do it? I think three years ago. Doesn't it just feel daunting when you think about it? No, well, running's addictive. So once you start, you just kind of get used to it. And you have your crew with you, and they motivate you, and you're doing it with other people, so you're not doing it by yourself. What's your vision 10 years from now? What do you think Tahoe will be like? One of the biggest impacts to Tahoe is our ailing infrastructure. We were built out in the 1960s, 1950s and 60s, to accommodate the gaming industry and the 1960s Olympics. Here's a quick clip from the 1960 Olympics. Hello, everybody. This is Lowell Thomas, greeting you from Squaw Valley, the Tahoe National Forest, here where the eighth Winter Olympic Games are in progress. This, as you know, is the greatest spectacle in all winter sports. And there was no thought really put into the buildings that were put up. And we still have a lot of those old buildings. So we're trying to work on removing the buildings that are in sensitive land and put them in town centers and have more urbanized areas that are economically successful, that are more modernized, and that are better for the environment. So tell us a little bit about the relationship between Lake Tahoe and Lake Baikal. Well, Lake Baikal is officially our sister lake. And Lake Baikal is in Siberia in Russia. It dwarfs Tahoe. The, the lake is huge, and it's got this small little bay on the bottom, and Tahoe is the size of that bay. And there's also been a huge exchange in information between the two lakes, and that started um, through the Tahoe Baikal Institute in the 1990s, where we had an exchange program where we brought scientists and policymakers from the U.S. to Russia and vice versa. And it was a great opportunity just to learn about the different systems and about the best ways to protect in the different areas. Have you been out there, Darcy? I have. I had the opportunity in the early 2000s. And it was cool? It was amazing. It's one of the most beautiful places I've ever been. One of my buddies from Russia, George Gogolov, spends a lot of time in Lake Baikal with his mother, Masha Voronsova, who is one of the leading Russian freshwater zoologists. Lake Baikal contains 20% of the Earth's fresh surface water, equivalent to all five of America's Great Lakes combined. I asked George what it was like to spend time on Lake Baikal. That's almost a mile deep pretty deep yeah it's yeah. the deepest lake in the world so you got uh freshwater seals there uh and uh and great fish uh which is uh, sort of a freshwater herring it's a five and a half hour flight from moscow and a two-hour drive to the closest area but if you want to go to some remote areas yeah you better take like a small plane or a chopper or a boat to get out uh the, the tourism industry there 
and it's again a little underdeveloped and underregulated. Uh, and there's a lot of small hotels. Um, they uh, a lot of them have sewage issues, uh, and um, they're not allowed to discharge water into Baikal, and they're not allowed a lot of them to do like local sewage treatment. Um, so a lot of hotels, for example, would not have showers. Um, but you could go swimming in the lake. Yes, you could. Yeah, and we went even during the winter. We had some bonnie and we went swimming. Uh, lately, there has been a major problem with the Chinese tours uh, because uh, somehow uh, Baikal uh, got on the list of some Chinese government program, uh, which was originally made uh, to show uh, cities to rural populations. So like, you know, free trips to the cities. Uh, and they just started adding some cities abroad. So they added Irkutsk and Lake Baikal as one of those, you know, free destinations for Chinese rural workers. Uh, so they, they fly them in with huge airplanes, and they almost leave no capital there because it's all run by one company, uh, which is owned by one guy there as an ex-politician. Uh, and they don't buy souvenirs. You know, they don't. They don't, they don't pay any extra for restaurants. You know, everything is, like, super cheap. And then they come in hordes, and they say, like, the main tourist areas, you know, they, they would not follow the paths. It caused a lot of damage to the local ecosystems. The way Interesting. I've never heard of Chinese rural tourism in Russia. Yeah, uh, me neither. But they say that during the summer, it's, even, it's almost impossible to get into local museums because they're all overbooked with these groups. It's just like, uh, it's amazing. It, it's a very, very high volume tourism, which is very poorly regulated. Thanks to Jacques Landy, Darcy Goodman Collins, and Georg Gorgolov for sharing their stories about Lake Tahoe and her sister, Lake Baikal. I had no idea going into this episode that the commonality between these two alpine lakes would be the impact of uncontrolled tourism. In Lake Tahoe, the influx of over 20 million tourists driving 11 million cars has to be addressed if the clarity is to be restored to its former glory. In the poem by Oscar Wilde, The Ballad of Reading Jail, he writes, Each man kills the thing he loves. By each, let this be heard. In Lake Tahoe and around the world, tourism is overwhelming nature and local communities' ability to cope. I spend every episode of Podship Earth extolling the benefits of getting into the great outdoors, and yet this week I fell victim to biking amongst traffic jams of people trying to get outdoors in Lake Tahoe. I think the answer is that we don't all need to go to the same places. There is so much magic only a few miles from Lake Tahoe at Castle Peak. When I hiked there on the PCT, I was the only person for miles. If we're all going to go to the same place, we need to leave our cars behind and also leave no trace. Next week, I get fully immersed in the Global Climate Summit that's bringing delegates from around the world to San Francisco. Rather than go to the official events, I'm going to visit the Fringe. Please like our show on the Apple Podship Earth page. It only takes a few seconds and it really helps the show attract a broad set of listeners. Thanks so much for being part of the Podship Earth journey from the entire Podship Earth crew. Sound engineer Rob Spate, producer Nancy Ferranti, executive producer David Kahn, and me, Jerry Blumenfeld. Have a crystal clear week. Podship Earth.